You can be seated. And I want to ask you to turn either in your Bibles or uh, in the worship guide to uh, the text that we'll be looking at today, which is from 1 Peter. Um, we've just last week finished a, a 10-week sermon series from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And we were seeing really throughout that series what it looks like for the church to live in the wilderness, uh, what it looks like, what it means that we are the wilderness people of God as we wait for the coming of the Lord. What we saw throughout that book is that Israel had already been delivered from Egypt. They'd already received the promises of God as he made his covenant with them and confirmed it over and over again. And yet they still had to fight and struggle and trust the Lord because they were waiting to enter the land. They were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises to them. And then similarly, we've seen how we find ourselves situated in that, in that kind of environment. We've been delivered from uh, our sin and from death and from the kingdom of Satan through the death and resurrection of Christ. And we belong to him and we, we are his people and he's our God and his promises are unshakable and they're unfeeling. And yet... We're in this world, and we're not yet in the full experience of what is ours in Christ. And so we, like them, continue to struggle and and trust and fight and wait on the Lord. And so as we pilgrim through this world, and that's a great important image for us to have pressed into our minds and our hearts, as we pilgrim through this world, we're called to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus who's in heaven for us as our great high priest. And he's ensuring our safe arrival there uh, at, at our inheritance in heaven. And so we're to keep our eyes fixed on him and to wait upon him and to trust him and not to be shaken by the things of this world because he is reliable and sure. Now, as Hal said, next week, he's going to begin a sermon series on spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6. And I think this text is a good bridge from the Numbers series to, to that one that begins next week. Because it looks at a little bit more about this pilgrim identity uh, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's uh, give our attention to the reading of God's word. First Peter 1, beginning at verse 13. Again, this is God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, according to your word, everyone here is like a baby who needs to be fed continually from you. We need the pure spiritual milk of your word that we might grow up into salvation, that we might grow up into maturity. There may be some here who have never listened to your word, who've never really acknowledged it for what it is and have never really humbled themselves in in front of you. But Lord, I pray that today you would use this word as it's read, as it's preached, that you would use the word to reach down into their their hearts and into their, their souls and to take hold of them and turn them toward Christ. Lord, there are um, in this room believers who are relatively young in their Christian experience, and there are many who have walked with Christ for a long time, and their need is the same, to feed upon Christ as, as he's preached in this word. So, Lord, this is our need, and we stand before you, we sit before you, waiting for you. Lord, please come and speak to us and work on us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this letter was written by the Apostle Peter. If we were to go back to the beginning of the letter, we find that it was written by Peter to God's elect. Uh, he's writing to people who are scattered by persecution. It's, it's written to people who are scattered in the world, but yet at the same time, in a much more profound way, they've been gathered together by God uh, into his new people. They've been cleansed by the blood of Christ and made alive by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is writing to them about God's mercy. The first 12 verses of this letter, he's detailing how God's grace has given them new life and a new hope, an inheritance that's imperishable that will never pass away, that his mercy has, has given them salvation that God's gracious dealings with them are so unfathomably wonderful that it can't even be expressed. This is where Peter begins, by rehearsing the gospel of God's grace to them in Christ. And you, you can't help but think, at least I have not been able this week to help but think of how Peter had come to know that grace personally. How Peter, through his own failures, through ultimately even his own denial of Jesus Christ, had come to taste very personally the restoring, enlivening grace of Jesus Christ to him. And so he's captivated by the grace of the gospel, the grace of Christ. And he begins there, here in his letter. And then very quickly, and this is where we pick up today, very quickly what we see is that Peter's understanding is this, that a proper response to God's saving grace in Christ is a life that's full of of hope and of joyful obedience toward God. This is what should increasingly characterize our lives 
as God's wilderness people. And so what we find here in this passage is Peter's charge to us that we live obediently in hope. Live obediently in the hope that is ours in Christ. In light of the amazing provision of God's grace in Christ, you're called to live in the active obedience that flows from your living hope. And you see this right here in verse 13, as Paul begins with a therefore. And really, the whole Christian life, your whole life as a Christian, a believer in Christ, comes out of this therefore that Peter begins with in verse 13. Obedience never earns grace. If anything earned grace, it wouldn't be grace at all. But when the free grace of God comes into the life of a man or a woman or a child, there's a therefore. There are conclusions. There are implications. And the implications are that there's increasingly a holy, obedient life that flows out of the one who's freely been graced by God and united to Jesus Christ. And the reason for this, the reason that Paul says, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, and he goes on to talk about a way of life, which we'll see in a minute, the reason for this is really rooted in the very character of the gospel itself, which is multifaceted. You see, on the one hand, the gospel means freedom from the guilt of sin. It means forgiveness. Sin has left us guilty and under God's judgment. By faith in Christ... You're set free from that guilt and judgment through his death and resurrection. When you believe in Christ, his righteousness is credited to your account, and God no longer judges you as guilty, but declares his judgment of righteous. You're acquitted. You're guiltless in his courtroom. This is part of the gospel. Justification. Deliverance from the guilt of sin. But it's not all of the gospel. Because the gospel also addresses not only the guilt of sin, but its power. Its power in your life. Because the scriptures teach that sin not only leaves you guilty before God, but it also leaves you enslaved to sin's power, powerless to fight against sin, helpless to fight against it. But the gospel speaks good news into that too, that by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, By faith, you're not only delivered from sin's guilt, but also from its power, from its enslaving power. Jesus brings freedom from that as well. And this is what's often been called the double grace of the gospel of Christ, that it brings both forgiveness and freedom. It brings both pardon and power. And so the good news of the gospel is that if you're in Christ, you really are a new creation. You're free from sin, free from Satan's kingdom, free from its enslaving power, and free to live for God, free to walk in new life. And this is what Peter's beginning to unpack here in verse 13 as he speaks to God's wilderness people, and he wants us to see the implications of the gospel in our lives. Faith in Christ means a new identity, a new heart and therefore a new way of life. And so after rehearsing the gospel, as he does in the opening paragraphs of this letter, he comes to this, therefore. And what he's driving at is this. The living hope that is ours through Jesus Christ is a hope that is actively holy. The living hope that is ours through Jesus Christ is a hope that is actively holy. And those are the two things I want us to look at together this morning, that hope is active and that hope is holy. Now let's look at how Peter 
teaches that here in this passage. You can see the call of the gospel right off the bat in verse 13, as Peter says, Therefore, in light of God's grace, in light of his mercies, preparing your minds for action. Literally, it's gird up the loins of your mind. Now, there's some words there that we're not used to using. We're not used to probably frequently using the word loin, uh, nor talking about girding it up. But it's an image that would have been very common in the first century. It's a, it's a word picture of a man wearing a long robe, and if he's going to spring into action, he's got to gather up his long robe between his legs and tuck it through his belt in order to be able to run and to get into action. And that's the phrase, that's the image that Peter's using here. Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare yourself to go. Prepare yourself to spring into active hope. Now, it's interesting. Because according to Peter, hope is, on the one hand, a gift from God that we're born into through our union with Jesus Christ. You see that back in verse 3. Hope is a gift from God. But on the other hand, Peter also says that hope is something we're called to cultivate. So hope is a gift, but hope is also a calling. It's something that we're commanded to, to cultivate. It's both of these things. You find that here in verse 13. And the point that I want to drive at here is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your perseverance in him is guaranteed because that's a work of God. It's a sovereign work of God that you do not contribute to. But while your perseverance in Christ is guaranteed, you don't do it on autopilot. It engages you fully in the work. And that's what Peter has in view here. Prepare your minds for action. Now let me, let me make some... Let me, let me point out the fact that Peter's focus is on the mind. Prepare your minds. Gird up the loins of your mind for action. Prepare your minds for Christian action. Now, Peter begins with the mind. Paul begins often with the mind in the New Testament because this is where obedience begins. If you don't know the truth, you won't believe the truth. And if you don't believe the truth, you won't live according to the truth. You won't bear fruit for for the glory of Christ. But if you're thinking and believing the truth and the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, then what will happen? You'll be loving the truth. Your affections will be changed by the truth. Your will will be changed by the truth. You will live according to the truth. And so Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Let me give you some practical ways I think that could work out for you. What does it look like? What are some ways you could be preparing your minds for action as a Christian? Many of you may take notes during sermons. That's a great practice. I like to ask people who take sermon notes, what do you do with those sermon notes? Look at them during the week. Isn't that a great way to prepare your minds for action? You're you're wrapping your mind around the word of God and around the ministry of his word. You're soaking it in, thinking about it, talking on it. So for another example, be involved in community groups. Put yourself in places where the Word of God is studied and where you're praying together and where you're sharing your struggles and and, and joys together. Make something like Sunday school a priority. Come and be taught. Prepare your minds for action. Learn the truth of God. 
Feast your soul on his word. Read good books. Join a summer book club this summer. We have, we'll have some for men and for women. Read some good books together. Talk about them. Prepare your minds for action. So don't let this just sort of sit out here as this nice idea. Prepare your minds for action. You're actually called to do it. We're actually called to do it. To think the truth and, and to give ourselves to God's word. And we'll come back to that in a bit later. Prepare your minds for action. So hope is active, and you have to prepare your minds to live the Christian life. But let's look how Peter unpacks this as he goes on in verse 13. What does he say? He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's calling us to do? Set your mind fully, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's calling you to? He's calling you to live with your eye on the second coming of Christ, on his coming again in glory. He's giving you a particular thing to to focus your mind on, the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus comes again in glory. This is something that the New Testament is really preoccupied with. This is something that the Bible talks about a great deal. And I'm not sure that our focus on the coming of Jesus Christ in the world to come is in keeping with the emphasis it receives in the Bible. But Peter is saying, if you're going to be prepared for the Christian life, If you are going to grow as a Christian, if you are, as he says at the very end of his letter, going to stand firm in the true grace of God, then your mind and heart really have to be set on the world to come. Now, that may sound like a very vague, ambiguous, strange thing to some of you. And for some of us, that's true because we haven't learned to do it. But very simply, that's the way of the Christian's life in the New Testament. If you're going to be ready for the Christian life, then you have to have your hope set on the coming of Christ. Now, what Peter's doing here is he's giving you a command wrapped around a promise. You see, the command is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Set your hope there. Set your hope on the fact that Jesus, who died and was raised and is now in heaven, is coming again for you. Set your hope on him. Set your hope on the new creation that he's bringing with him, the full salvation that he's bringing with him when he comes. Set your hope there. That's the command. But you see, it's wrapped around a promise. He's coming again. And when he comes again, he's bringing grace with him. He's coming not to deal with sin. He's done that. But to bring salvation to all who are waiting for him. That's the promise. Set your hope fully on him because the one who's coming is a completely powerful and gracious and loving Savior. And he's coming with grace in his hands for his people. Set your hope fully on him, Peter says. That's the command wrapped around a promise. He is coming, and he is coming with grace for his people. Set your hope fully on him. And if this is your focus, here's Peter's logic. If this is our focus, it will absolutely change your life, your whole life. That's why he tells you to do it. It will change the way you live and think. It will change the way you interpret what goes on in your life. It will change your whole life if you're setting your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you an illustration. Imagine a husband calling his wife 
on the telephone on the way home from work. Okay, many of you husbands may do that. So imagine a husband calling his wife on the way home from, from work. Now, imagine as he's talking to her that he hears in the background a not-so-faint sound. And it's the sound of maybe a child, maybe multiple children. And maybe it's something less than the sounds of peace, love, joy, and obedience. Okay? Just imagine. Just try to imagine that. (laughs) Now, now imagine that the wife turns away from the phone and says with great power and authority and conviction, Daddy's on his way. Now, what might happen? What might happen, what I might have experienced personally, what might happen is that the children suddenly spring into action. They suddenly begin to do whatever it is they were supposed to be doing already. Now, what's happening in that situation? These children are beginning to live in the light of the fact that their father is coming home. They know their father loves them. They know that he accepts them completely. But what do they also know? That they don't want their father to come home and find them disobeying their mother. Let me put it this way. There's a certain amount of ethical clarity in the lives of these children when they know that their father's coming. Okay? That's true for us as well. And that's really a a, a big part of what Peter's getting at here. Very often we live as if this world is all there is, as if this world is our home, but it's not. This letter is addressed to exiles, and it's not just them back then, it's us here. We are exiles, we are pilgrims, we are strangers in this land. We are citizens where? Of heaven. And from there we await a Savior, Jesus Christ, who's coming again to take us to be with him there. And that's why Peter says what he does in verses 14 and 17. As obedient children, you see, there's the analogy, there's the illustration. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't be pressed into the mold of the world. Don't be who you once were because that's not who you now are. But rather, Conduct yourselves with fear, with reverence. When? How long? Throughout the time of your exile. You see the themes there. Exile, pilgrimage, wilderness, fear, reverence, obedience, children, father. It's all there. And that's how Peter calls God's people, calls us to live. To live our lives as strangers here in in reverent fear. Now, why is this important? It's important because... You're surrounded by temptation. You're always hearing other messages. You need to stay, Peter is saying, awake and on your toes. And the way to do that is to set your hope not on the things of this world, which is where it naturally falls, but to set it on the grace that's coming when Christ returns for you. Our Father is the living God. He's the one who will, as Peter says in verse 17, judge each Judge impartially according to each one's deeds. He's the one who's your father. The one who you call as father is also the judge. Now, what's true for the believer? If you belong to Jesus Christ, 
God's love for you is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. It cannot shift. It will not change. He will not remove it from you. There's no fear before the presence of God, except there's reverence, but not, not fear. Not, is he going to cast me off? Is he gonna, there's none of that. There's no condemnation. There's peace with God. There's security and fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And what's also true, according to Peter at the same time, he will bring your life out into the light. Daddy's coming home. And there's, for us, as there was for the children in the little parable, a certain amount of ethical clarity, Peter is saying, when we keep our hope focused on the coming of Christ, that he is coming, and that the one who is coming is the great and almighty and powerful and wise and infinite and holy God. Live in light of his coming. Years ago, a great theologian uh, with a wonderful name, Gerhardus Voss, Uh, said this, hope cannot flourish where the heart is in the present life. If your heart, your affections, your hope, your joys, your confidences, if all that stuff in your life is wrapped around stuff in this life that can perish, there's no hope that can grow there. There's no faith and love that can grow there. There's no Christian obedience and maturity that can grow there. Hope can't flourish where the heart's in the present life. Well, what has to happen? Love of heaven has to drive out the inordinate love of what's earthly. Now, do you notice the pattern there? You can't just walk out and say, I gotta stop loving this worldly stuff. That's fine to say that as far as it goes. I gotta, I gotta get this worldly stuff out of my life. I've gotta stop loving the things of this world. That's part of it, but that won't do it. Because what has to happen is the love of heaven has to drive it out. What does that mean? It means you begin to see more clearly what Peter was seeing very clearly. The greatness of God. The grace of God, the kindness of God, the glory of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to love heaven? It means to love God. You love heaven because God's there and you love him. And you long to serve him and you delight in him and you rest in him and your hope is set on him. And then what begins to happen is all that other stuff just begins to get squeezed out of your life. Or rather, you're enabled to put it to death and to deal with it. So let me ask you this question. Are you more at home in this world than you should be? I mean, really, all of us have to say yes, right? But we need to ask that question. What are the particular areas in your life that really are out of sync with who God is and with who you are in Christ? When when Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, when he says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What things especially come into view in your life? Well, what Peter is saying is that in Christ we have a living hope. In Christ we have a living hope because he is a living Savior. And those who have that living hope should be living to please the one who's raised them to new life. You see the connections here? If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have a living hope because you have a living Savior. And if you have that living hope, it means you're called to be living for him in that hope. And that's what Peter gets at next. And I I need to hit this quickly, but we need to see it. Because where Peter goes, beginning in verse 18, is to say that hope is active in order that it might result in holiness. Lead us to holiness. Look at what he says in verse 18. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. 
There's this rationale. If you were saved by God, if you've been saved by God, you've been saved for God. If you belong to him, it's because he chose you in love. It's because since his justice required payment for your sin, and since you were in no position to offer that payment, he in love delivered up his own son as the scapegoat for you, as the ransom to pay for you and to win back your life, to pay for you, to buy you back. And he did so with the precious blood of his son. And Peter's logic is this. That means, among other things, your life is not cheap. Your life is not unimportant. Your life is not meaningless. Your life is not vain. If you belong to Christ, your life has been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that God has taken you as his own treasured possession. You're his. You're his because he chose you and sought you out. And if that's true, to say that you're his means you're his. And it also means you're not your own. And so your life is not your own. And my life is not my own. We're not our own to do what we want, to live for ourselves. But we're God's to live for him. Shouldn't our lives reflect that? Do you want your life to reflect that? Do you want your life to reflect the fact that not only is this identity yours in Christ, but you've been given all these resources to live this way. You're, as Peter says here in verse 14, you're God's children. In verse 17, God is your father. In verse 23, you've been born again of imperishable seed. You're new. You have life in you. Don't you want your life to reflect that more and more? Is that your desire increasingly? You can't ever possibly become a, a person who deserves what Christ has done for you, can you? You can never be that, that kind of person. But what Peter is saying here is live in light of the, of the price that was paid for your life. Well, how? Because he quickly answers this question, how this happens. And very simply, he says it happens through the word of God. I want you to notice something here. Look in verse 23. Peter says, you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And then finally in chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. You see what, you see what Peter's saying here? In just a few short verses, he's saying we're born again through the word of God and we grow up in Christian maturity through the word of God. It's God's word that saves us and it's God's word that sanctifies us. It's God's word that makes us alive in Christ and it's God's word that grows us up in Christ. It's the pure spiritual milk, Peter says, that is the staple of the Christian's diet. Hal encouraged you earlier, if you're not already reading the Bible in some systematic, regular way on your own to make use of the plan that we have uh, on the website or we have little booklets out in the lobby. Why do we go to these efforts? Why do we ask you to do this? Why do we provide ways for you to do this? Because it is the staple of the Christian's diet. A Christian who's not feeding on the Word of God is a very weak Christian. A, very, a Christian very susceptible to temptation. A Christian standing on the edge of a cliff even. Because the Bible proclaims Christ and there you see Christ and their faith lays hold of Christ and as faith lays hold of Jesus, faith grows stronger. And as faith grows stronger, the Christian grows stronger. 
So Peter says, feed upon this pure spiritual milk because apart from a steady diet of Scripture, there can't be any, any growth. Now, some of you are struggling. You're stuck in persistent sin. You're weak. You're, your hope is fading. You're anxious. You're fearful. You're angry. You're worried. You're weak. Let me ask you this. How's your diet? Are you feeding on the Word of God? Because if you're not feeding on it, you cannot expect to grow as a Christian. But if you are feeding on it, as you continue to feed on it by faith in Christ, God will feed you and nourish you and strengthen you. Now, one last thing that I want you to see from this. And if you'll look there in chapter 2, what do you see Peter calling us to? Love for one another. And this is, this is one more concrete way in which all of this shows up in our lives. What does it look like when you're setting your hope fully on the grace that will come to you when Jesus returns? How does it change your life? What does it look like to be feeding upon the Word of God, growing and maturing? Well, here's one, here's one result. Out with the envy, out with the hypocrisy, out with the strife, in with the love in with the brotherly kindness, in with a church that's growing and growing and growing and increasing in love for one another. That's one, that's one way it looks. You see, that's what Peter says here. He calls us to love one another deeply from the heart, to rid ourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Why? These things have no place in God's family. So what Peter's saying Look, we live in these times when Christ has been revealed. He's risen. He's the king. He's restored you to God. He's established a bond of love between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given you new birth, a living hope, resurrection life. So what? See that that shows in your relationships is what he says. But let's end, not with ourselves. There's a lot in this passage that calls us to to work out the implications of the gospel. But we need to end not with ourselves, but with a look outside ourselves to Christ and to what Peter says about him. He's the spotless lamb of God. He's the one who's redeemed us, who's bought us with his precious blood. He's the one who's given us liberty in which we now live. And so come away from this text and ask God, God, show me again, show me more clearly the greatness of my Savior who's coming again and fill my life with things that, that reflect who he is and who he's made me to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray again, as we did a few minutes ago, that you would use it, that you would change us, that you would grant to us faith and repentance toward Christ and that you would fill our lives with things that are pleasing to you so that as we look at one another and so that as a world looks upon the church, what, what is seen is really a, an imperfect but a clear picture of the glory of your love for sinners in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.